listening to Nightmare on Film Street. The current time is 6.66. Traffic is clear ahead from here to the afterlife. But it's hell outside. For the next hour, you're on Nightmare Time. So, let's give a grave welcome to our hosts, John and Kim. Hello again, fiends, and welcome back to Nightmare Alley, the spooky little side street podcast in the regular Nightmare on Film Street feed. We are coming at you this week with a bonus episode of the podcast. I'm John. I'm Kim. Reporting live from on the road in the RV of darkness. We're still on our way to the Brooklyn Horror Film Festival. And we're here today to share a little conversation we had with Hellraiser director David Bruckner. Uh, we had originally planned on talking with uh, with David for a written interview on the website, but we had so much fun chatting with him about the Cenobites and the whole Hellraiser universe that they that they reimagined Clive Barker's uh, you know weird universe of chains and fire and pain uh, that we wanted to share it with you on the podcast here today. So real quick before we throw over to the trailer, Kim, what are three good things about Hellraiser? The first thing is that if you're anything like me and you had a hard time getting into the Hellraiser franchise, it's it's a it's a lot to chew off. It's very gory, it's very extreme, and definitely quite cerebral. And that isn't to say that the 2022 version isn't that, but I find it it does a really great job of reintroducing this version of what the Cenobites are, what the puzzle box is, and everything else. Um, for the unengaged or, you know, if you need to get re-engaged with the franchise or you haven't caught caught up in a bit, or this is your very first Hellraiser movie. Yeah, number two, I'm going to go ahead and say that this movie is so fucking gory. Holy shit is this movie gory. Even just the Cenobites alone look super fucked up. And then they do a lot of super fucked up things to to everybody that's uh, silly enough to open up that puzzle box. Uh, if you are a gore hound, you are going to love this new Hellraiser movie. Uh, streaming services like Hulu, not always the place you go to for super gory kind of extreme movies, but this this one delivers. And it really had to. Uh, point three, I'm going to go with the color palette in the lighting. It I looks think great, right? Every single shot of this movie, every single Cenobite is hero image, trading card worthy. The, the colors and the lighting are so fun and spooky, and it's such a unique film because you're melding two worlds together. When the gates open from the bo- from the puzzle box, whatever the other world is, is seeping into whatever set piece we're on. So there's a lot of opportunity to be really creative, and they definitely were. Yeah, and all of that is done practically. You'll hear all about it in the podcast here. So we're going to throw you over to the trailer for Hellraiser, and when we come back, we'll be chatting with director David Bruckner. Beautiful, isn't it? It's really nice. You can hold it. What is it? It's a puzzle. And it's almost finished. Keep going. So if I solve it, do I get a prize? I do. It has 
six sides, six configurations. It opens up and it cuts you. And then they come to collect. Nice to see you. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks so much for taking the time to do this. We've been honestly, we've been dying to talk to you since we saw the ritual back at TIFF. Oh, cool. Years yeah. Ago. Yeah. That one is, I mean, we, we watch it all the time. Like, yeah. Kind of, we've, kind we've of done watch parties on Netflix with it. We show all of our like listeners and stuff. Like it's just oh, our go-to. Thank you. Oh, that's <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a weird, uh, it's, it's become a kind of a comfort horror film for a few folks. Like, uh, it's surprising, so- but not really. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of get it, you know, it's like, I just want to hang in these woods for a little bit, but no, thank you for saying that. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't, I don't know if this is the case for you, but I've found that a lot of people see the original Hellraiser like way too young. Do you remember how, how old were you when you first saw Hellraiser? Yeah. Thanks for saying that because I, I've been, I've been doing, uh, doing the rounds talking about the movie and people are like, what's your introduction to Hellraiser? And I'm like, well, I, I was probably 12 and it was Hellraiser <laughs> and uh, that that was the movie that found me first and uh and i i didn't i i was uh i was easily frightened so horror films were hard for me to get into in a way um i had a friend kevin coglin in high school who was my gateway drug into horror and so he mm-hmm. wouldn't drag me in and make me watch <laughs> a lot of these movies that just wouldn't go down easy for me but hellraiser 3 was terrifying and uh i know it differs from uh from the earlier chapters in a lot of ways but it i do think it captured the kind of existential dread uh, there just is no escape and uh and the idea that always stuck with me was the the notion that there's a fate worse than death even in a horror film which is like tortured for an infinity um, and all that kind of tinge with the, the, the judgment that comes with uh, some of the religious iconography and being that I, I grew up in the church, like that shit just mm-hmm. terrified me. So, but that was my early introduction. And then, um, and then it was a bit later when I, I started to get into horror a bit more that I, I went back and I saw the first one and I saw the second one. And then years later, read Hellbound Heart. And, and obviously like, uh, yeah, I mean, the first Hellraiser is a masterpiece you know, and huge fan of the second one, which, which grows over time. And sometimes you, you start to go, wait, is that my favorite Hellraiser? <laughs> I don't know where I, I don't know where I'm landing with this necessarily, but, um, but yeah, I, I've always held the franchise in incredibly high regard and I always thought of it. I, I, these aren't my words, but somebody described it recently as graduate level horror, which was, oh. it, it had a, it had a special place because the barrier to entry is that it's so abrasive um, and so hardcore that you almost have to cross that line with it to understand some of the richer themes that are there and to realize that there's a real poetry to it. And, um, and that it's, it's much more advanced than what you're used to. And, and that's so uh, true. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely one of the most cerebral, gory horror films. Like you normally don't get both of those two in the same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
I love I love hearing too that the third one was the one that was your introduction because maybe it was just like the right time but I remember that one being the one everybody talked about on the playground like there's this fucking dude who like shoots CDs and kills people <laughs> that, was, that was every kid's favorite when I was growing up <laughs> you know and at the time I I was a CD head what's his name is I think it, it's CD it, head I think you're right CD yeah. head was uh was a, a, a completely like I, I had no problems with it I was like this is a fascinating Cenobite you know and, <laughs> Now you're like CDs, uh, but uh, what was his sin? Like, what? How? How did he get to that point? <laughs> that's his sin was being a DJ. <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, he his walk was incredible, and he had the bizarre robotic sound effect movements, which I thought was like an interesting addition. But uh, no, I think I think I think they captured the wrongness in that one uh, in a way that like really, really stuck with me. And I thought the statue was terrifying. I thought Finhead sort of fused into the statue drinking blood and uh, of his victims. And uh, there were a few really, really terrifying moments in that one. Yeah. And so when it when it comes to sort of creating the the Cenobites in, in your movie, how much of it was was on the page and how much of it was sort of a collaboration between you and the Russells? Yeah, so the uh, the script, uh, Ben and Luke had created, I mean, obviously the priest Pinhead was in our film and, and there was a character we called lovingly the Gasp, which was kind of an ode to the credited female Cenobite in the original Hellraiser. And uh, and then beyond that, they uh, they had a chatterer, but we had no idea what he would look like. And they had described two Cenobites, the Weeper and uh, the Asphyx, which short for to asphyxiate oneself they have such metal names yeah <laughs> yeah yeah well and also they, they're all kind of i and i kind of love this about cenobites that they're sort of um they're the names that a, a layman a passerby would use to describe them so it they are the names we have for them i who knows what the names that they have for themselves might be yeah like pinhead doesn't go by pinhead <laughs> Right. And, you know, <laughs> it's often reported that uh, neither Clive nor Pinhead quite appreciated the name. So, <laughs> uh, uh, that was a pop culture did that to our priest. But but yeah, so they, they were on the page. And then when I came on board, we started to have a conversation of like what Cenobites would look like in this new movie and how how we would approach it. And a lot of that was going back to, you know, the core themes in the film where this film would uh what it would bring in from the original and what it would choose to explore and and uh i i got in a room with uh, keith thompson who's our lead concept designer um is a uh, has a, a brilliant way with imagery and and uh, uh is educated in all manner of design and genre art and uh we started having a conversation and out of that we you know we started to kind of play around with you know what the iconography might be and we knew that we had to update it in certain ways and we had a big idea and we ran with it but it was out of those conversations that a few of the other Cenobites emerged and um you know I, I was trying to get as many of them as I could in the movie obviously yeah yeah there's the, the, you're you're gonna absolutely hate this next bit uh, <laughs> we're on the road right now and I had to we had to watch this on the laptop uh, but I'm very much looking forward to watching it at home on our brand new television <laughs> because there's there's I I assume maybe it's the the as, asphyxiation Cenobite uh, he's got the weirdest looking head um yeah. is is that the guy uh, What's his deal, I guess, is my question. <laughs> What's his the weirdest deal? looking head? Um, or are you talking about the mask who has the kind of absent? Yes. Kind of, that yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the asphyxiation is the one where the back skin is kind of pulled up over the face and right. stretched. 
is kind of always in a state of near suffocation. Yeah. Uh, no, the mask was, uh, uh, we started down a path of, uh, I think, look, it's in the trailer has been the, the conversation that one of the things we did with the lore was sort of expand the universe of experiences that the Cenobites have on offer. Mm-hmm. You know, the sensation, the journey towards pleasure is there, uh, which is present in the original film, but uh, also there are these, uh, you know, other ideas and, uh, you know, lore, infinite knowledge. What would it be like to have the universe open before you and learn too much? Would it probably be terrifying in some way? Our lottery configuration, which is, a, a, you know, about uh, is love is to see two souls coalesce. What would it be to be too intertwined, you know, to uh, become too close to the presence of another being? Uh, what is it to really know someone and is there terror in that as well liminal which is sensation and pleasure um uh lazarus which is resurrection which i think is about permanence well, permanence mm-hmm. is about an infinity of time and then power but uh, we wanted a cenobite that spoke to lore spoke to wisdom which is the second configuration and and the mask was uh an ironic depiction of that idea and so he's both he has a kind of um, educated, uh, refined quality about him. We often joke that in the film, the mask is just on the edge of offering you a drink. And he's, <laughs> uh, he's definitely inviting you to a very weird party, but- uh, <laughs> They all are inviting you to a very weird party. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, beware. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, he's uh, he's he, he's he's adorned with scripture in his flesh. Oh shit! Uh, See, this is why we have to watch I, it on the TV. I know. Goddamn, I'm so mad. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 there. It's you. You probably got to look for it, but it's there. And 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 then he's also, you know, the irony of it just being that, um, you know, part of his head is removed, and uh, the backside of his head, and the, the the intellectual side of what he might understand has been carved away. I like to think right. he's an operating medulla obligata that is, if I said that right. Um, so it's it's both base, uh, but then it's also there's this intellectual quality to it. We can ponder what experience he might be having, but he's he's one of my favorites. I love I love how much thought you guys have put into each and every one of these setabytes. It's amazing. Thank you. Like because yeah. like you you really so see fun. in design. Yeah. Is is there one that's like your favorite? Like is there one that you like the most? I, I kind of go. I've kind of gone through phases with all of them. <laughs> you know. Uh, They're all uh, your children. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I'm I'm you know the the, the trailer showed off a few of them. Uh, the gasp is not in the trailer. I'm excited for people to see the gasp. It was played incredibly by Selena Lowe. And the aspects is not in the trailer either. And, um, you know, there's a, there is a Cenobite that exists in only one shot of the film, which I think is fun, which hopefully just points to to a bigger world. But, uh, yeah, I love them all. And I, okay, this, this is maybe like almost the same question, but like, let's say you find yourself in an audience with the Leviathan, like, which one are you choosing? Oh, geez. You know, I haven't thought about it. I mean... I mean, hopefully, if we've done our job, every path is terrifying. Uh, but I, I would probably choose the, the the boring. I would cling to life. I would. Well, I would. I mean, yeah, I would, that's, I would a, that's a good choice. <laughs> yeah, I would at the threshold. Just uh, I would say thank you to the Cenobites and back away slowly. <laughs> I was like, how do I turn this back? <laughs> right. Or I wouldn't make it very long in these movies. So. <laughs> Oh yeah, definitely not. There's, there's no way I'd, I'd last. I mean, he- heck, I think even the, the lead character just kind of like lucks her way into surviving for the first ten minutes. Oh, it's complete circumstance, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going either way. Yeah. So the, the, the kills as well are obviously like incredibly gruesome. Uh, I, I assume that had to be like, especially practical effects had to be uh, like a top priority for you going into this project. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, look how Hellraiser is revered for its practical work. I, I'm someone who also believes that in horror more than any other genre, like you need real light landing on objects. Like if you're if you're looking in, if you're stepping into a fantasy world, if you're into sci-fi, um, you know, you can kind of create an imagination where there's the little bit of distance that comes from CGI. But something about horror is that your your lizard brain needs to believe what it's seeing on some mm -hmm. level. And so you got to do it for real. And you're also always in these movies out on a limb with your cast doing some really crazy stuff under time constraint. And something magic happens on set when real monsters walk out and people are, have to fight through like an actual puzzle box that transforms in your hand that I think, you know, going through the process of actually creating that stuff for real, just um, it puts us all there in a really, really special way. And and it's also becoming a bit of a lost art. And so we did as much as we could practical on this movie. Mm -hmm. There is a little comp blood, you know, there's not much CGI, even some of the background textures or miniatures. Like we really tried to do it cool. as old as we could. Yeah, Labyrinth is, is often miniature. And you may remember a spinning pillar at one point, like all that stuff's, you know, actually built. And- That's, that's uh, so cool. Yeah, yeah, and it's, 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 it, a, it's a blast to create, but, uh, you know, the, the, the middle ground between a full-on impossible practical approach, which would be probably beyond our budget, and, uh, and something that's CGI, which the, the common approach now is to, is to build things for real and then kind of comp them together. And, uh, and it creates, I think, a, a feeling that I hope echoes from the 90s in some way. You know, there's, there's some charm to it. How did you find your, your, your set uh, department, like the people that are making those sets for you? Because they look amazing. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, uh, Catherine Eater is a, an amazing production designer who uh, I, I got to work with on the Nighthouse, And it was our movie before this that had some similar kind of architectural uh, ideas and uh, transformations in it, which was also relevant to Hellraiser in some ways. But she also really, really ran with the kind of the, the, the sort of uh, regal grandeur that we wanted to put in the movie that feels very Hellraiser to me. I I always like the idea that the forces of antagonism can kind of flavor a movie. And I felt like the Cenobites in some ways had this, this kind of majesty that despite their kind of gruesome appearance, that there's such a vanity to it. You know, we fashioned a lot of their looks from looking at runway fashion. Mm. And, they are uh, very high fashion. They have such good posture. <laughs> right? Like it's some, we would do these uh, Cenobite kind of walk classes where everybody would get together <laughs> and sort of play. And like, what what is it to to feel everything all at once. You're in this extreme state of body modification. We talked about the idea that all their nerves are forever exposed. So you're just always taking, you're feeling everything all at once as a Cenobite, but you have this kind of, you're kind of gliding across it with this sort of Zen composure. And, uh, uh, and there's a confidence to say like, try this, you guys, it's great. <laughs> but that, the, the flavor of that is something that we also wanted present in the production design, you know, was something that wasn't afraid to be, you know, flamboyant and garish. And, and of course we had this um, amazing mansion setting that is the, the, the home of one of our characters. And Catherine really ran amok with that in, in, a, in a really great way. But we tried to get that, we tried to get design into every frame.
Yeah, I'm, I'm not at all surprised to hear that that she's sort of been carried over from the Nighthouse because the the design on that movie is incredible. And it's also it's uh, mirroring both that it, it's so integral kind of to the plot in in both oh. films that like you kind of have um, the worlds melding in this film and then not to spoil Nighthouse, but there's <laughs> there's some involvement with the setting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we, it was fun because well, Nighthouse was uh yeah, I, I feel like architectural horror or geography yeah. horror should be like an interesting like that's a great subject. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't it's something that I, I think for me, I've always been fascinated with space has gone wrong. You know, early dreams being a kid, and I don't know, I don't know what your nightmares <laughs> are. For me, the idea of I'm in I'm in the room, but it's different, you know, that uh anything house of leaves is uh yes. right. book was an influence, of course, to the night house. Um I just love that space. And, and in uh, Hellraiser, you know, you've got these, we call them dimensional doorways, which is, in the, you know, in the old movies, you open the box and the flats uh, of the set open up and the Cenobites emerge um, from somewhere else in, in cosmic fashion. And so we, we, we took some of our experiences in Nighthouse into this and, and, and tried to do a few different things with that, that the movements of the world of two dimensions interlocking and opening up sort of mirror the box transformations in some way. Uh, and those are also practical sets, most of them. That's what I assumed. I was like, it's like a fucking magic trick when it shows up too. It's just like, I know that this is happening like in camera, or at least you can see it. Cause like, I think even, you know, the actors as well, but like as a viewer, like you, you understand that this is something that's tangibly happening in front of you. Like horror labyrinth, you know, when, yeah. when she goes through like the wall, the, like the worst version of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. It's, it's surprisingly hard to build sets on casters and pull them apart. Like it's an interesting, it's a, it's a really great movie problem, but, uh, <laughs> but it's the kind of stuff that people get excited about on set. Yeah. And that would just be so cool to watch. I'm sure you guys just did it for fun. Just to like, <laughs> just like, I'm going to walk through the bathroom wall now. <laughs> We actually have um, uh, one of our storyboard artists uh, and uh, who did a bunch of previs for us is this uh, wonderful filmmaker and artist, Pat Horbath, who also did all the uh, negative spaceman images in the, in, in Nighthouse for us, uh, which had a similar. I love flavor. that name for him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, it was that, that was a figure that emerged from the architecture in some way. Uh, if you were standing in the right vantage and Pat's job on that was to uh, figure out how to do that in these kind of practical real world settings and locations. So he would just, we would kind of leave him at the house uh, sometimes overnight and he would just play around with like cardboard cutouts and lose his mind and come yeah. back. And wow. Like, I knew these 10 things and kind of looked like, <laughs> oh man. And, uh, and for Hellraiser, he did a lot of previs for those, those wall transformations. And we had some really elaborate ones that we just couldn't figure out how to do practically. Yeah, yeah, we tried, but some yeah. of them pretty elaborate uh, reconstructions of an environment happening that uh, I realized once we were on the ground in Belgrade that it was a big ask. Yeah, well, I mean, hey, even the stuff that he was doing for you on, on the Nighthouse is a huge ask because it's like watching it, it looks impossible. So to to know that you're trying to take that one step further in your next movie, I can see how it broke him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got to assume that uh, like a big part of your pre-production as well is, is probably like defining like a color palette. The color palette's like such a like a dumbed down version of, of what I want to say here. But like the movie is so red and so blue and it looks fucking amazing. Uh, I just love... Uh, how much the color pops in this, and um, and it seems to be like a, a an approach that uh, that I'm noticing across everything that you do. I got to imagine that's really important to you. 
Yeah, that's that's like uh yeah it's kind of fun that's sort of the icing in a way but it's also i kind of you know i look to my keys a bunch where that stuff comes from we just like sort of let it emerge over time uh eli born our dp did a wonderful job with light in this and it, one of the things that's great about hellraiser is that the gags are so complex and fascinating um i keep joking that it could have been a guy in a mask with a knife but it, it's not it's interdimensional like sadomasochistic demons that shoot pains <laughs> You know, <laughs> labyrinth, you know, it's a lot of moving parts and which is a testament to what Clive did in 87 on such a limited budget. But here we were, we had a lot of toys and it just every single department, they, they had such a unique set of tasks in front of them. One of the things for Eli was getting the dimensional light right, which was this kind of vaporous blue light glow that would move between the, you know, between the cracks in the walls in the original film, but it always kind of accompanied the Cenobites. And it's a very particular kind of blue and you can shade it too far to the red or you can shade it too far to the green and it feels different in some ways. And so Eli came up with a really amazing broken way to create it. There's this kind of, um, kind of organic aliasing to the way the light crawls across the walls and the way it paints on the Cenobites at times. And that was uh, some bizarre contraption that he created where he's shooting concert lighting into various moving textured bounce boards. And so it was kind of an elaborate setup every time we used it, but finding that blue really defined a big part of the palette for us um, and then figuring out how we would employ it. And then, uh, and then you get into the end of the film and you're cutting around a lot. You start thinking, um, I, I just want, I want the audience to know where they're at instantly. And so we started going from there into this, this interesting dungeon environment that has like a contrasting image and, and it all kind of congeals into the experience. But, uh, but yeah, thank you for saying that. Yeah. That's really interesting about that light contraption. Cause I feel like that also kind of piggybacks on the lizard brain stuff about like mm. how you can't quite tell that there's something off about it, but somewhere like subconsciously, you're like, the light shouldn't move like that. <laughs> well, some of it's also an update of just, I mean, you look at, you look at a lot of genre movies in the eighties and nineties, and every time something happens, I mean, even the original Hellraiser and the amazing hospital scene where Christy, Christy opens the box and the Cenobites arrive, it's like maybe three of the best minutes in horror history. You know, the Cenobites are standing in bright white light, but there's, misty fans right off camera just pummeling them like and there's so much environmental interaction and i find that the the audience has a, an appetite for that you know sometimes don't even realize you're seeing it like people really used to push thunder and lightning like anytime something would happen it was just like pouring in from the windows it's like <laughs> if i was ever in a storm like that i would it would be a very memorable moment in my life <laughs> so much lightning guys but with this because eli came up with this way of doing it there's there's something's in motion all the time like towards the end of the film really every image the light is crawling and creeping and maneuvering in strange ways. And um, something interesting and similar to that is that we tried to find a, there was a pace, there was a, a kind of a medium pace that we talked about that was the right feeling for the film, which is something that is moving confidently towards you at ease. It's not, it's not chasing you, it's not too slow. Uh, it's just kind of happening. And the, the rhythm of that and, uh, and the intensity of it was something that we replicated in the dimensional transformations. Also in the way the light, Eli's light crawls across the Cenobites. Um, also in the movements of the puzzle box or something that we talked about a bunch. Oh, cool. Yeah. 
it's it's so crazy how much movement there is and and everything like even just in how the light gets shot across everything the house is moving you like it's it's all designed around a puzzle box it's like like the you, whole movie is a puzzle box <laughs> you know, yeah there's that it's like listening to steven spielberg talk about uh, shooting on water and how like impossible it was it's just like you managed to shoot on water while staying like on a cement floor <laughs> uh, i'm glad all that comes across like it's uh it, it's it's we're bidding over our heads on this one like you know we had more means than the hellraiser films that came before us but we were still <laughs> way 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 in overhead so uh I'm, I'm glad that comes across thanks for mentioning that because it's it was a lot of you know excuse the metaphor but it, moving parts you know, <laughs> yeah yeah so who who gets to who gets to keep the box like do you have that at your house right now i'm sure there were like 30 boxes <laughs> i've got i've got um several of them right here which i know we're audio only but since we're on zoom I yeah but we get to see so <laughs> Oh, awesome. Um, but these are just, these are wrap gifts for a few folks. But yeah, yeah, we got a few of our puzzle boxes. But we had, I think, because, you know, the boxes are practical and they have moving parts, it's impossible to build a box that moves as much as the box does mm -hmm. in the movie. So yeah, we've had uh, different stages of each formation. And I think, I think we're close to 30 different iterations of the box. Wow. Um, so, yeah. That's crazy. I mean, that, that's actually one of the really cool things about the box, too, is that, um, like, it has an impossible movement to it. Mm -hmm. The Cenobites like have an impossible quality to Like, it can get impossibly large when you're like, where yeah. are all these pieces coming from? Yeah, it's it's like the nightmares you would have, where, like, you know that this there's something, like, you can see it and it looks normal, but something about it tells you that it's wrong. It's, I guess it all yeah. comes back to that lizard brain. Like, some, <laughs> just, just looking at it, you know that you are in danger. <laughs> I'm so glad you mentioned the nightmare logic because that is it's something that I, also fascinates me and is something we talked about a bit. Because the first instinct, there are a couple CGI transformations in the movie because there's just some things the box does that would have been impossible to do practically. But the first, the first instinct is to do something, some crazy Transformers abstraction. And then you, there's a conscious effort to scale it back to being something that is just past what might be possible in your mind. And, and it toys with the audience. So the first couple of times it happens, you're kind of like, okay, all right, I can see how that works. But then of course it just starts to, it starts to do <laughs> much in certain ways as the movie gets weirder and it kind of takes us on a journey in that sense. So, but yeah, absolutely. Like it starts to bend the rules of reality at a certain point and, but hopefully it doesn't go too far. And in, in terms of rules, I guess, like, I don't know if this is the same for Kim, but like, I have always had like a really, and I think this is intentional, especially in the earlier movies. Like, I've always had a hard time figuring out how the world of Hellraiser works, but like I had a, a uh, it was really easy to follow in your movie. So I want to thank you for that. Like I've always felt too dumb for the Hellraiser movies, but I really locked into this one in a, in a way that I hadn't with the other ones. There's a weird, um, and you talked about this a lot when you were writing your review is that like everybody just uh, treats Cenobites as facts, like in the horror community, nobody talks about what a Cenobite is or describes like, oh, they're these, these hell beings. They're kind of like the gatekeepers of endless pain. And like, right. nobody says that people are just like, oh, the Cenobites came and you're like, <laughs> what's a cenobite what is this like what is what does it do <laughs> yeah yeah what is a cenobite I, I i always thought of them as well there's so many different things right but i think the thing that for me really became the north star in this is that they they are they're individuals who have gone too far into the realms of human experience mm -hmm. and they're more advanced than us and so there, there has to be the promise on some level that what they have on offer could be enjoyable Maybe you want it, 
<laughs> but as we were talking about earlier, like, it's just terrifying to the degree, to the extremity that it's being explored in some sense. And um, and there's a lot more, you know, especially in the earlier movies that can be mm-hmm. contained, what they are, especially in what they represent. But that was something that, you know, we could we could really attach to. But, you know, to the other point that you were making, like, yeah, there is this is a a modern studio horror film. Like we're trying to take Hellraiser and give it to an audience that may not be as familiar with what is somewhat of a, a niche franchise in horror. And even though it's well-known, it's it's kind of surprising for us in the journey of taking it out, how many people don't know about it or how many people are are stuck at that barrier to entry where it is, it is it may be too abrasive for them in some ways. One of the things I love about the original movies is that they don't follow a strict rule system necessarily. It's very much the language of dreams. There's a surreal quality to it. And it's kind of permitted in those films to kind of run amok in that way. But I think given modern audiences and where horror was, we did kind of feel like, okay, this has to both capture that feeling, but it also has it has to have a some semblance of order mm-hmm. that we can kind of attach to. So hopefully we struck that balance where it... It makes sense, but it doesn't make too much sense. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I still have questions, but I, I feel like I'm you should have questions, though, because it's like, what is that world that they come from? Like, yeah. it's, but you should also like never quite know, never quite understand. Yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> I think that's what makes you want to reach out to them. You're like, no, I just need to I just need to follow them for a half a minute and see what's going on. Like, that's not a good idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I really love your saying that they are like the end of existence and like they're experiencing everything at once. It almost makes that movie Martyrs is like a prequel to Hellraiser. Oh like Hellraiser was what comes after Martyrs. Right, right, right. Uh, Pascal was going to make, he was on to do a Hellraiser movie at one point. Oh, I mean, wow. How wild would that have been? <laughs> I turn out for that in a second. Martyrs is brilliant. But yeah, no, there's certainly some similarities there. That's yeah. so cool. Like just to think of like the the sensation and like oh it makes my the hairs on my neck stand up. <laughs> but yeah. uh, David, you know, I uh, want to thank you again for taking the time to talk to us. We sure. like to close out every review by asking people what their dream double feature would be at the drive-in. So if you could play any two movies, what would you play? Oh wow! At the drive-in. That's the qualifier, right? That that changes the question. It does completely. change because you're like, ooh, you got to watch this in your car. Nighttime, fresh air, terrible sound quality. <laughs> mm-hmm. I have the weirdest combination of movies just popped in my head, which is um, Wake and Fright, and then rounded out with Cemetery Man. Okay. okay. I don't know why. I don't actually know that they go together. It's a weird night at the movies, but I'll just I'll just <laughs> leave. Yeah. What is so? What is Wake and Fright? I've never, I haven't heard that. Wake one. and Fright is this incredible Australian movie about debauchery uh, <laughs> from I think the I think the late seventies, and uh, you got to watch. It's kind of like what if what if a boozy bender was a horror film? Run amok. Okay. And it is. It, you talk about nightmare logic. Like it becomes a circular trip into madness. It's one of the most unsettling films I've ever seen. All right, it's on. not a great drive-in movie. Actually, on second thought, I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of a, I, maybe I recommend that in a, in a in a in a comfortable uh, place where you have everything together, not when you're partying. <laughs> <laughs> you have this to drive home in the dark. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, highly, highly recommend. Like oh. interesting, uh, kind of. Uh, I wouldn't call it a horror film, but it's but it's in the family. Yeah. All right. At least I mean, at least you close out with a nice laugh in Cemetery Man. Cemetery Man. It's a, a fun ride. Big fan of Cemetery Man. It holds up too. Uh, I mean, it's weird. I don't know. So not all of it. 
Yeah, not well. Most of it holds up. But, uh, <laughs> We're backtracking real fast here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, it's surreal. Rupert Everett. He was he, he was on fire. Like that's yeah. some special work in there. Thank you again to David Bruckner for taking the time to talk to us today on the podcast. Hellraiser 2022 is currently streaming on Hulu. It came out this weekend. Uh, I know a lot of people have been watching it for their 31-day horror challenge picks this week. Uh, It is a perfect, gory movie for a late night in October, and we highly recommend you check it out. That's it for us for this bonus episode. We hope you enjoyed it, this little trick-or-treat Halloween treat. Until next time, I'm Kim. I'm John. Stay Stay creepy. It appears you made it out alive, but we'll get you next time. Help us to grow the horde. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. More terror can be found lurking on our website, nofspodcast.com. Until next time, stay creepy, fiends.